Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College. Today, we're discussing conscription. The U.S. ended conscription, or most commonly known as the draft, back in 1973, and converted the military to an all-volunteer force, or the AVF. There have been calls periodically since that time to reinstitute the draft, or some broader form of mandatory national service. My guest today is Dr. Michael Strobel, who's recently published an article in the October Marine Corps Gazette that challenges this call, titled Military Conscription and Forced National Service, an idea whose time has come and gone. Dr. Strobel is currently serving as the Deputy Director of Manpower Plans and Policies within Manpower and Reserve Affairs. He is a retired Marine officer and author of Taking Chance, a Marine Corps Gazette article and HBO film about his experience escorting PFC Chance Phelps home for burial following his death in Iraq in 2004. And since it's been a while since Taking Chance has come out, I will note, if you haven't read it or if you haven't seen it, man, stop what you're doing, turn this podcast off, and go do that. It is a... a, painful but fantastic look at the human cost of war and just a moving tribute to what it means to honor our nation's fallen. So Dr. Strobel, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at MNRA and how this debate about national service really came to your attention? Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, very proud to be here today. Uh, So as you mentioned, I'm the deputy director of manpower, uh, deputy director of manpower plans and policy at MNRA. And uh, we have a kind of a wide portfolio of issues, but uh, a couple that are under our purview that are somewhat relevant to this topic. Uh, We do a session planning for the Marine Corps. In other words, uh, we take the requirements and figure out how many recruits the Marine Corps needs to recruit every year. And we hand that mission off to the recruiting command. Uh, we determine how many Marines and of what type, uh, what grade in MOS we need to re-enlist every year. Uh, we determine promotion plans um, and, and lateral move plans and things like that. So a wide, wide array of issues related to military manpower. So naturally, an issue as substantial as uh, conscription or potential conscription is of interest to me. Um, also, the the draft is kind of at an intersection of two things in my life, my professional world that I, as I just mentioned, but also my uh, academic background as an economist. Um, as, I, as I write in the article, and I think we'll talk about uh, probably here in a minute, um, economists played a prominent role in, in ending conscription in the early 70s. And uh, I think there's a couple of reasons why economists are uniquely um, uh, positioned or prepared to contribute to the debate about conscription. So this this topic is just a real intersection of my personal and professional interests. And uh, uh, in uh, the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act, uh, Congress created this uh, National Commission on Military and Public Service. And uh, so this, and I'll get into in a minute why I think that commission was created. And if I don't, please remind me. Um, but with the the confluence of, of my personal and academic interest in the topic and then the, the new uh, relevance to the topic of conscription to uh, the national debate, I, I thought it might be worthwhile to, to write an article about it. Well, great. And given your background, you are certainly... Uh, well-prepared or uh, an expert in this field. So thank you for your comments today. So why do you think mandatory national service 
is is back on the table for yeah. discussion? Why does it come up every once in a while? I, I think there's two reasons it has come up now, and, and maybe one more important than the other. So I'll start with that one. Um, the so as most of the most of your listeners probably know, the draft has uh, throughout our history has only applied to men. O- only males have been subject to conscription, and when that's been challenged in the courts, uh, it, it's that uh, policy has been upheld on the grounds that women are not eligible for all combat roles. Well, in 2015, uh, the Defense Department changed that policy, and all occupational fields and all units are now open to women. So there is absolutely no difference uh, as far as assignments between men and women in, in what they're eligible to do, presuming they, they meet the standards for that MOS and that unit. So there were, there were I, th- I think, discussions in the in Congress and, and other places and probably around a few water coolers, including mine, um, as to, well, if every, job are, if every job is now open to women, then why should only men have to register for the draft? And there were some in Congress, some members of Congress, who uh, were proposing that women should, in fact, be required to register with selective service. And my impression, and, and my, my history might be a little fuzzy, uh, but I, I think what happened is rather than taking up that proposal, um, Congress kind of took a baby step and they implemented this National Commission on Military Service to look at all things pertaining to the draft. And, and not just for military uh, service, but for national service. Like you, you th- we, we might think of things like the Civilian Conservation Corps from back in the uh, uh, 30s and 40s. So I, I think that's the real impetus for why this is a, a, a renewed topic of discussion. Um, I think maybe, uh, and in my mind, maybe to a lesser degree, but uh, we have sort of an unprecedented level of political divisiveness in the country right now. And I think some people would argue, advocates of the draft would argue, that conscripting citizens into the military would, would enhance national unity. I personally disagree with that, but even if I did agree, I would question whether the, the benefit of doing that is worth the cost, but we, we will probably get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. So anyway, long answer to your question. I think those are the two reasons why this is currently a, an issue. Okay, great. Thank you. And as you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, many of your arguments in the article focus on through the lens of economics, so economic reasons why conscription isn't uh, a useful approach for the United States. Can you explain why you focus on economic arguments? What's, what's at the core of the economic issue with right, conscription? Right, right. If I remember back to before I had training in economics, I, I probably was a, an advocate of the draft myself. But in, in studying economics and the economic way of thinking, it, it has uh, completely changed my position. And I think there's, there's two aspects of economic training that prepares one to contribute to this discussion. And, and let me before I get to those, let me mention that Two very well-known economists were members of, of what was known as the Gates Commission. This was the, the commission uh, that was stood up by President Nixon as soon as, uh, right after he was inaugurated. Uh, and it, its charter was to look at whether or not we should continue the military draft. And in, uh, uh, it, it was made up of uh, 15 prominent uh, academics uh, and uh, military leaders and others. Um, but two of the, the members of the Gates Commission were Alan Greenspan and uh, future Nobel, Nobel laureate Milton Friedman. Hmm. And, and really, uh, it was probably, if you could give credit to any one individual for ending the draft, it was probably Milton Friedman. Um, 
So economists have played a, played a prominent role in, in this discussion. So why are economists um, uniquely, well, maybe not uniquely, but um, well qualified to contribute to this discussion? I think the first thing is the study of economics teaches a, a, an understanding and a respect for the free markets, and that includes labor markets. And, and uh, you can strip away the, the, the nobility of military service sometimes, and it, and it can be useful to think of it as a labor market, just like any other labor market, because really it is mm -hmm. uh, under a free market, all-volunteer system. So free markets um, are the way, uh, the best way known to man to enhance social welfare. And interference with free markets tends to be a drag on, on social welfare and efficiency. But free markets, um, they depend really on three, uh, at least, uh, three distinct um, uh, conditions. One is that individuals have a freedom of association. Uh, we don't force people to, uh, to do business with someone if they, at least this is a principle of free markets. We don't force you to do business or not do business with somebody whom you would prefer to voluntarily trade with or not trade with. And, and, and when I'm talking about markets, I want to reemphasize, uh, and when I say trade, that includes labor markets and trade for our, our services. Um, another um, component of free markets is, is the freedom to enter into contracts or to not enter into contracts if you choose to. Um, and then finally, um, free markets, uh, a, a critical component of free markets is uh, secure property rights. And in the context of the draft, that includes the property of oneself. And, and if the government can interfere with any of those three freedoms or securities, um, and, and it does in many realms, uh, no doubt, besides just uh, potential conscription, but anytime the government interferes with those freedoms um, and disrupts the free market, you get distortions, you get inefficiencies, and ultimately you get a reduction in social wel welfare. So economists are, are trained to understand that and look for that, and, and, to, and they can... Um, both anecdotally and more importantly empirically, they can make a case for why free markets enhance social welfare. Um, the, the second thing that the study of economics does is um, it helps you see the unseen, uh, to put it one way. And what I mean by that, I, I think uh, economic training helps, helps the economist look for the, the, the subtle but unintended consequences of policy. Um, in, the, in the context of the draft, um, economists like Milton Friedman, they pointed out that although you could potentially pay, you could, you could potentially have a, a lower defense budget because you are conscripting citizens, uh, you, in other words, you've disrupted the free market and you mm -hmm. can pay them whatever you desire as the government if you can compel them to serve, um, that uh, economists realized that the, the real cost to that and it, what they called the draft tax is uh, the difference between what we pay uh, conscripts under the draft versus what they could have earned in the private sector exercising their mm. own free will. Mm -hmm. um, and in the article, I use an example of a, a cybersecurity analyst. If, if he or she could make $100,000 in the private sector, which I probably lowballed that, <laughs> but uh, just for sake of s simplicity, uh, 100000 in the private sector, and they are drafted and paid a, a a military wage of sixty thousand. Well, that draft tax is forty thousand dollars. Now you don't see it. the the con, The conscript doesn't get a bill for that, and and nobody uh, writes the IRS and and submits that. But that is that does not make it any less real. Uh, so it, even though it's unseen, 
the economists uh, are trained to see those unintended consequences. And, mm -hmm. and those arguments uh, uh, put forth by the uh, economists on the Gates Commission in the early 70s, I think they helped carry the day and, and uh, ultimately result in uh, abolishing conscription. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I try every day to learn something new. And yesterday I learned the actual difference between a boat and a ship, which I don't know that I believe this explanation, but the explanation that was given to me was that a boat, when it turns, leans inward, and a ship, when it turns, leans outward. I have no way to validate that, but, <laughs> but people seem very convinced that was true. And today, thank you so much, I now know that Milton Friedman directly contributed to the ending of the draft in the U.S. Yes. I had no idea. In the article, I, Alan Greenspan. I, I recreate a, a passage from a book by Professor David Henderson at the Naval Postgraduate School where he... Uh, he um, uh, he recreates a conversation between Milton Friedman and then Army Chief of Staff William Westmoreland, and and uh, it was it was I would I like to think it was that precise moment uh, when uh, Dr. Friedman was uh, questioning General Westmoreland that ended the draft. Hmm. That's fascinating. <laughs> so the economic argument or the economic approach is one line of argumentation against conscription. You mentioned the national unity argument as well. And, and there are those who argue, and fairly regularly, that conscription would help to narrow what we know is a widening civil military gap in the United States. How do you respond to that claim? Yeah, th that is, uh, I I'll concede that is a, a troubling issue. Um, I'm not convinced yet what exactly the problem is with having a military that isn't representative of society. Or is, is that the question? Mm -hmm. Representative yeah. of society? Okay. Um, but let's, 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 I'll concede that that is a problem. Um, but I would offer that there are other governmental institutions that also um, uh, are not representative of society. It's easy. You think of Congress. Uh, think of the gender and racial imbalance in Congress, uh, the Supreme Court, the President's Cabinet. These are, in, these are government, very powerful government institutions that do not look like the rest of America. Um, and I'm not saying that that makes it okay for the military to not look like the rest of America, but I'm saying there are other functional government institutions um, that don't quite look like America. Um, so let's assume we had conscription under the current uh, construct of excluding women. Uh, I'm not sure how excluding women from the military would uh, enhance national unity, for one thing. And then uh, another point on national unity is a, a lot of times uh, when people talk about the draft, what they're really saying, or at least implying, is that they would like to see the military be larger. Mm -hmm. And that is a distinct the, the, the size of the military and whether it's correctly sized to accomplish its missions is a totally different question as to whether or not we, can, we should conscript citizens or rely on the all-volunteer force. So I'm going to presume, and, and I hope the rest of our conversation I can point out where either you or I, because I do it too, where we, we implicitly assume that a draft means a bigger military, because mm -hmm. it doesn't. That's doesn't a different, different yeah. question. Um, so if, if, a, if even under the draft, we still had roughly 1.3 million active duty service members, which, which is what we have now under the all-volunteer force, that's still less than one-half of 1% of our population. So there's nothing inherent about the draft that, uh, that increases national unity, or a point I think we'll get to in a minute is, is uh, enhances people's so-called skin in the game. So, so one more issue that's related to the size of the military. 
I, I actually say the smaller the military, the better, as long as um, we think that, the, that it is correctly sized to accomplish its mission. Instead of thinking of this problem uh, as, as military, as people affiliated with the military or people who are deputy directors of military policy, let's think about it as American citizens. The more people that are in the military, by definition, the fewer that are pursuing other economic activities, the, and, and those activities make us all better off. You know, there's fewer Uber drivers, there's fewer cashiers, there's fewer uh, physicians to serve the public. Um, that does not make us better off when we take people out of productive civilian activities and put them in the military for no other reason, or, or let me say, for reasons unrelated to national security, okay? So uh, I, I think those are a few arguments, at least, that I, that I would put forth um, on the, the issue of enhancing national unity. So you had just mentioned advocates of conscription saying that this gave people greater skin in the game, that if you serve in the military, you're more familiar with national security and defense-related issues, and, and that leaves you a little more invested in how folks on the Hill or in the White House are shaping policies related to right, national defense. Right. So, so let's, let's stipulate, uh, because military, the size of the military is unrelated to the draft, uh, I will say under, under one scenario that the draft does not increase the number of people with skin in the game. It just rearranges who has skin in the game, okay? And, and let me expound on that. So we, people who say that, they, they seem to imply when they say we need more skin in the game, that people who are not serving have no skin in the game, or maybe very little. Um, and, and I reject that assertion uh, because, first of all, we have to remember who it is that pays for national defense. It's, it's the rest of the, it's, it's the entire populace. And this includes women, the wealthy, um, the elderly. It includes people that are not eligible for the draft, okay? So what, what happens if we go to conscription instead of the all-volunteer force? Well, I'm going to presume, as um, many advocates of the draft do, that uh, we could, do, we could uh, maintain a force uh, at less cost if we can compel service members to serve. Um, so what does that do? That relieves, especially under our progressive tax system, that relieves the skin in the game or relieves the burden on especially the wealthy who pay a higher percentage of taxes. And it places almost uh, the, the, well, I won't say almost all, but a lot, a lot more of the uh, burden of national defense on those few unwilling conscripts who happen to get drafted. That is not increasing skin in the game. In fact, it's going in exactly the opposite. Another thing that happens when you, when you create government programs, and you can probably think of a dozen uh, off the top of your head, when you create a government program, um, they always come with loopholes and exemptions, and, and, and it's no different in our history when we had the draft. There were many ways to avoid the draft. Well, what, tended, what tends to happen and, and, in fact, did happen under the conscription was those, uh, the wealthiest, the, those with connections, those with uh, uh, disposable time, uh, those with influence, they were the ones who had uh, the ability to, to exploit those loopholes and, and avoid service. So, so not only does that not increase skin in the game, it, it removes, uh, again, I'm presuming uh, you could pay, you would pay a lower, uh, less than market uh, uh, wage to military conscripts. It, it reduces the skin in the game of the very people that we often think of should have more skin in the game, which is kind of a bizarre uh, uh, counterintuitive logic. Um, 
And, and so who, who's left to carry the burden if, if the people who have wealth and time and connections can avoid conscription? Well, it's, it's the other end of the spectrum. It's, it's the people who do not have those connections. So I, I, I really have a hard time seeing uh, where the draft is going to uh, would enhance skin in the game. Even if you made the military larger, uh, just to get more people with alleged skin in the game, um, I, I don't think it would work. In fact, I think it would work exactly counter to, to the objective. So, Dr. Strobel, if the draft is not the way to get the average citizen to perceive that they have a stake in national defense, how can we? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question because I, we probably all agree that uh, every, all citizens should appreciate the stake that they have in national defense. So let me offer uh, an idea that I think is intriguing, although I recognize it's a near-zero probability of ever being enacted. But w w imagine a world where instead of having automatic uh, federal tax withholdings taken from your paycheck every two weeks, uh, if at the end of the year or maybe just the end of the month, if you, had, if you received an itemized bill from the government and you had to write a check, the same amount that you're paying now in federal taxes, but you got an itemized bill and you had to, you had to sit down and write one check at the end of the year, and it showed on there that your share of national defense was $22,000 or whatever, okay? I think if, if we did that, and, and I know it's a, it's a fantasy world, but if you did that, people would have a stake in national defense, and they would have a stake in, in, uh, defen uh, in federal spending at large. And I think we would have much more informed, better informed military policy decisions. I think we'd probably have less military adventurism. Um, so th that's what I would do. I wouldn't change necessarily the, uh, um, the, the federal budget or the military budget, but I would make people realize in a very painful way, although without increasing their actual cost, uh, make them realize what they actually are contributing, what, what skin in the game they actually do have. So, you know, I've always thought every year as I try to calculate my taxes on my own, because I'm the jerk who's going to do it myself. You know, I, I use an online program, but, but I've got to calculate my own. And it, it frustrates me not being an economist that the government clearly knows what I owe because one year I yeah. sent my money in very dutifully, I, I believe strongly in paying my taxes, and I got something back that said that I hadn't paid enough and I owed whatever plus the penalty. Well, if the government knew how much I owed, why didn't they just send me a bill to begin with? Sure. So this would be fantastic. They can just send me the bill. They can tell me what I'm paying for, and I can send yeah. them the money. Well, and, I, and yeah. then there's no user error on the non-math person's part. Sure. Perfect. And 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 I bet um, even though your your month to month or, or week to week paycheck would be higher under this uh, regime, when you sat down and 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 your your fellow you know whatever it is 150 million fellow taxpayers sat down to write that check they would pull their hair out and would demand changes to the federal budget to include military budget that's how you get skin in the game great thanks. not not by uh, forcing involuntary servitude mm -hmm. well let's let's talk about the size of the military as it relates to conscription you point out in the article that the, the U.S. military was able, without conscription, to grow by nearly 100,000 in response to the needs of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. During the 20th century, the draft was used partly as a manpower tool, but also as a tool to manage military personnel availability and to bring predictability to that process of building forces during times of great demand. Without conscription, could the U.S. military today actually mobilized to the level that it would need to fight a near-peer competitor like China or Russia? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, and I uh, I am willing to say we don't know. Um, but I, I will say, and I say this, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think 
pretty well placed uh, professionally to, to uh, have an opinion on this. Uh, we do a, a very good job of personnel management under the all-volunteer force, uh, and that includes in-strength increases and reductions. Uh, we have a well-developed system to um, assess, uh, uh, by that I don't mean uh, uh, pass judgment on, I mean bring into the military. Uh, we, we have a well-developed system to assess, to train, uh, to classify and MOSs, to promote and to separate service members, and not just the Marine Corps, but all the services. And we saw um, the Army and the Marine Corps combined grew hundred by 100,000 Marines and soldiers from 2005 to 2010. So there, there is, uh, there's a very well-designed system um, to bring in uh, additional military manpower under the all-volunteer force. Um, there's also a risk when you rapidly expand, that you will quickly uh, have infrastructure capacity issues, and also, uh, maybe more importantly, you will um, you will rapidly start lowering enlistment standards. And as uh, if we were to head into a battle with a near peer competitor, and I think you said uh, China, um, I expect, uh, and I'm speculating here, um, but I, I expect that we would uh, not want to be lowering enlistment standards and that the kind of uh, uh, battle space that we would be dealing in is, it would be, not be your you know, uh, 20th century uh, you know, lined up in formation uh, frontal assault. I think it's going to be more in the cyber realm. Um, I think it's going to be distributed uh, logistics over a vast range of, of geographic territory. This to me doesn't um, suggest that we would need to have a massive um, growth in military in strength. I'm not saying we wouldn't maybe want some growth uh, and maybe uh, substantial growth, but I don't think it would be growth that we couldn't uh, fulfill under the all-volunteer construct by paying market wages. And I also think, uh, and we saw this after 9-11, um, in, in a substantial conflict, um, at least initially, and, and it, it, it tends to be sustained for quite a while, we get sort of a patriotism bump, uh, and we actually end up turning people away who would like to get into the military. So I like to believe that between uh, the free market, uh, free labor market activity and a patriotism bump and um, kind of a, a, a 21st century force structure that relies a lot on technology and distributed operations and less on uh, massed formations, that, that we could grow uh, to the necessary manpower without resorting to involuntary servitude. Okay, great, thank you. In the article, you note that conscription, quote, weakens the nobility of voluntary service, or voluntary selfless service, excuse me, to one's country, end quote. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, if I had to do it over again, I might uh, reword that a little bit. Um, I, I could see how that could be t uh, misconstrued in, in, uh, relative to what I meant. Uh, so let me tell you what I was thinking. Um, th what, when, without the draft, when you look at someone in uniform, you know with certainty that they joined of their own free will out of some sense of patriotism and volunteerism and, and selfless sacrifice, okay? Under the draft, that certainty is no longer certain. Uh, now that doesn't mean, and here's where I think I may be uh, uh, erred a little bit in how I, I described uh, my position on that. that. That doesn't mean that a draftee doesn't have the same motivation of selfless sacrifice uh, and, you know, uh, and, uh, and patriotism and wanting to serve his or her nation. It just means we, don't, we can't know for sure because they didn't have a choice. 
So, so I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to sort of clarify that. And, and I also would, would like to acknowledge, I, I mentioned it in the article, that I have uh, immense respect for the, the really countless number of draftees in our nation's history that have done just heroic uh, things for us. Uh, I, I in no way intend to diminish the, the role that draftees have played uh, throughout uh, our history, but I just think uh, it, it's a it's a counterproductive policy that we could do without uh, in 2018 and going forward. Okay. Last question. What are you reading right now that our students should know about? Well, <laughs> that, that's, I, that's really two questions, I think. One is, what am I reading right now? And two is, what am I reading <laughs> that your students should know about? So, um, I, I just, just yesterday, I finished a book called Desert Solitaire uh, by uh, Edward Abbey. And th this was a little bit outside of my usual uh, genre. This was uh, written by a man who was a park ranger at Arches National Park in eastern Utah in the late 60s. And, and I grew up in western Colorado and spent a lot of time in that area. So it was, uh, was kind of neat to read about it um, from a, a park ranger's perspective. So that's what I just finished reading. Uh, I'm not sure your students need to know about that, though. Um, uh, I, I, uh, uh, maybe more, of more interest to your students, uh, the book I, I finished before that was uh, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, uh, mm -hmm. on uh, kind of an inside look at the White House. Mm -hmm. Well, we try to tell our students, if all you do is read military history and national security, that's great. But as you grow more senior, you need to have a little broader interest and be open to things that aren't straight down the, the center mass of, yeah. of what you think you ought to be yeah. learning. So I, I think that's great advice. I, I tend to read or, or listen to audiobooks, uh, a lot of economics, and this, mm -hmm. this uh, story of a park ranger on his solitary post in eastern Utah was a real change, and mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, great. Well, Dr. Strobel, thank you so much for coming on our show today. If you would like to read Dr. Strobel's article, it's in the October issue of the Marine Corps Gazette. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at College. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Palma. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Ribeiro. Have a great day.